Uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 15. Uh, Acts 15. If you're using one of our uh, pew Bibles, um, you'll find it on page 924. Uh, Acts chapter 15. We will um, read the, uh, the end of chapter 15 and then the first 10 verses of chapter 16. It's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Um, and, uh, if you are able, let me ask that you do that now. Let's stand together as we, as we read Acts 15, beginning in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them, John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way uh, through the cities, they delivered to them the observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had gone up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. You have inspired Luke to write these words. You have preserved these words. It is now your function within the triune God to apply these words to our hearts. And so we pray for your presence. Use this, your word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name and for his sake that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So there are these these words, words like um, normal, ordinary, uh, average, mundane. Uh, these are all words that are taboo in our world, right? Nobody wants to be normal. Nobody wants to be average. In fact, even when things are bad, we want them to be extraordinarily bad. When our kids have problems, they're the worst problems that anyone's ever had ever. The idea of normal, the idea of ordinary, the idea of of mundane, the idea of average 
is sort of taboo in our world. We expect things to be extremes. We expect things to be extraordinary. We expect things to be above average or abnormal. But if you think about it, the majority of your life is marked by average. It's marked by ordinary. You wash dishes. You cook supper. You do normal, ordinary, average, everyday things and think, what is this? What exactly am I doing? So much of our lives actually is, is actually ordinary. And we would do well to learn to recognize God's work in the ordinary, in the normal, in the average. And this passage actually unpacks that for us. We get a glimpse of several places where just normal, ordinary, average, everyday events happen. And God uses them for the growth of the church. And it's not until the end of the passage that there's finally something extraordinary that, that, that expands the growth of the gospel. You see at the end of chapter 15, beginning in verse 36, I sort of figure... Um, if I were Barnabas or Paul, I would never have been Paul. If I were Bar- I wouldn't have been Barnabas either. If I were Barnabas or Paul, uh, you know, you'd be like at Starbucks and, and you're, you're, the two of you stop in for an espresso in the afternoon. And Paul looks at Barnabas and says, look, I think we need to go visit all those churches that we helped plant on our first missionary journey. That'd be Acts 13 and 14 for us. Wouldn't have been for them, but it is for us. And Barnabas apparently said, I think that's a good idea. I'll call John Mark and and get him to go with us. And evidently, that was the wrong thing to say. Barnabas wanted his cousin, Mark, John, John Mark, kind of a double man, to go with them on this visit to go visit these other churches. See, they have a, the way Luke writes it in verse 39, a sharp disagreement. The word sharp implies a sword, actually. In fact, it's the same word used of Paul in Acts 17. We'll see this in a couple of weeks. When his spirit is provoked, the word is there as he's looking around Athens, Greece. They have this sharp disagreement. Uh, the, the sentence, his, I'll call John Mark and invite him to join us. That was a sword. There was a, it was a poke. And, and with that, Paul was provoked to respond, no, we're not doing that. He's not welcome to go with us. Now, now consider the situation for a second. I sort of ignored it. I didn't really make much of a deal of it back in Acts chapter 13. But if you go back and look at Acts 13, verse 13, uh, John Mark has actually left Antioch with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He goes with them to Cyprus. And then when they leave the island of Cyprus and head to the mainland, the first sentence there is, and, and Mark left. He went back home. We're not told why. We're not given any information. We're just told that he left. That's the background behind this disagreement. Paul doesn't want to take 
John Mark along. He wasn't there the first time. Why would we take him the second time? He was not there to participate in uh, the planting of these churches. And so why would we take him to go visit these churches? We aren't given a reason why he left in Acts 13. We're not told here. We never find out really what was going on. Mark, of course, is Barnabas's brother. I mean, cousin. Uh, perhaps this is one of those matters where blood is thicker than water. He's family. He went with us and he's my cousin. You know, I promised my aunt I'd look after. I mean, we don't have any of that background, right? And so he's committed to uh, taking John Mark with him. You do remember, Barnabas isn't his real name. His name's Joseph. He was given a nickname by, um, by the apostles that means son of encouragement. He was such an encourager, an encourager that they decided to name him that. I, I've used illustrations. I think this is a different illustration. We had a, um, when I coached JV soccer back in 96, 7, and 8. Uh, a little small Christian school in Dillon, South Carolina. Um, we had a girl on the co-ed team, you know, small Christian school. You don't have that many. We had a girl on our team, Nicole. All our friends called her Nickel. Um, I, I told her she wasn't worth a nickel, so we changed her name to Penny. And everybody called her Penny for the next three years. Um, that's what happened to Barnabas. He was such an, an encourager. He was so kind and thoughtful and encouraging to the people around him that the apostles just decided to name him son of encouragement. And that's how we know him. That's not his name. He's Joseph. And we, we get that one time back in like chapter four. And for the rest of the Bible, he's Barnabas. Maybe he's just being an encourager again. Maybe he's just being consistent with his personality. This is who I am. This is what I do. I give people second chances. Come on, John Mark. I know you left the first time, but I think you can go. I think you're worth it. I think you can do this. I think you should go with us. On the other hand, there's Paul. You know Paul. Author of the majority of the books of the New Testament. Actually, at this point, he's already written Galatians. Prior to Acts 15, the letter to, Galatia, to the churches in Galatia, has, that letter's already gone. It's already been sent. It's already out there. He's an apostle come lately, you might say. Author of so much of the New Testament. We have this sort of notion that um, surely he doesn't get things wrong. He also seems to be one of those high D kind of driven personalities. He, he, he's got this committed, stick-to-it kind of attitude, and he expects that of everyone around him. And John Mark bailed, and he doesn't want to, to reward that. You've got Mr. Darcy's voice in your head. Uh, my good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. So there's this sharp disagreement. In fact, it was so sharp, it was so... Serious. It was so intense that we never see Paul and Barnabas together again. 
They separate from each other. You and I read this and, and we're torn. The Apostle Paul, author of the New Testament, can't have been wrong. But Barnabas sure seems right to me. He's the one that seems like the kind, loving, caring one. And I'm pretty sure we should be like that. So maybe Paul's the one in the wrong. What if? And Ken Sandy's book, um, The Peacemaker, is helpful here, I might add. What if neither one of them is wrong? What if really deep down this is a difference of opinion? on how a ministry should operate. What if, in reality, you've got just two godly people evaluating a situation and reaching two very different conclusions and separating over it? That seems to be what's going on here. There's nothing in the passage, there's nothing in their relationship to say, well... But clearly Paul was in sin here. Or clearly Barnabas was in sin here. This is two people who have a very different vision of how the ministry should operate. And because of that different vision, they separate. There's no, there's no issue of sin. There's no, there's no right or wrong. It purely comes down to a disagreement over how things should operate. But notice what happens. Notice what comes out of this disagreement in verses 39 and 40. What would have been one missionary journey becomes two. What would have been two people going on the mission trip became four. And with that, God uses a normal, everyday, ordinary disagreement over vision to actually expand the mission and the work of the church in the Mediterranean. Barnabas sticks with Mark and takes him to Cyprus. That's where Mark, Barnabas was from. Paul took Silas. Silas was one of the men sent from the Jerusalem Council to carry the letter explaining Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And, and Paul grabs Silas and says, here, come with me. We're going on this mission trip together. Let me do really quick. Let me just sort of bring closure to this relationship for just a second. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. And let me just show you where... Um, where things end up between particularly Paul and John Mark. Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse 10. Paul writing to the church in Colossae. Uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Or look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you may want to go ahead and stick a finger in 2 Timothy. We'll be back here again in just a few minutes. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the last letter Paul writes uh, from prison in Rome. Verse 11. Luke alone is with me. And he tells Timothy, get Mark 
and bring him with you, for he is useful for me to me for ministry. It appears that Paul is unlike Mr. Darcy. His good opinion, once lost, apparently was regained. God uses a normal, average, ordinary conflict over a judgment call to double the the mission work in the Mediterranean Sea. We get another glimpse of that in the first five verses of Acts 16. Perhaps, um, you know, there are times when, maybe you have this feeling too, there are times when you kind of wish you could read the Bible again for the first time. Right? You ever have that moment where you're like, I would love to, to have that sense of surprise in some of the, the outworking of the way uh, God's providence plays out in the life of the church. But you and I, we've been not that long ago in Timothy's letter, Paul's letter to Timothy. And so you read here as we're working our way through the, the book of Acts, Luke recording sort of history of the church from 0 to 60, volume 2. Um, we run across this name, Timothy. And, and as we read that name there in verse 1 in the back of our minds, or perhaps you're inside, you're thinking, oh, there he is. Wait a minute. There's a, there are a couple of letters that bear this guy's name. So this is how Paul and Timothy met. Well, let's find out how they met. Oh, look, we're not told. We're just told that he was there. Were they at the same prayer meeting? Were they at this, did they visit the same church? Were they in the same house having dinner with a, a family together? We're not given any of that. Were they invited to the same party? We have none of that background. It seems to be just an average ordinary meeting between Paul and Timothy. We know Timothy's background. Uh, we see it here in Acts 16. We see that his, his father was a Greek. His mother was a Jewish believer. Timothy, as the son of a Jewish woman would have been viewed by the Jews as a Jew. Meaning, he should have received the covenant sign of circumcision at eight days old. For whatever reason, maybe there's no synagogue, uh, maybe being married to uh, a Greek, she's kind of let her Jewishness lapse. We're not given any explanation. All we know is that Timothy was not circumcised. He hadn't received that covenant sign, but he should have. You see a pattern, by the way, for Grace Covenant Church? The child of at least one believing parent receiving the covenant sign of baptism. This is part of where we get our practice from. So Timothy should have been circumcised. And yet, for whatever reason, hasn't been. Turn with me to, back to 2 Timothy again. And let me show you a little bit more about Timothy's background. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we find out in verse 5. 
Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy has been raised by a Greek father, a Jewish mother, but his Jewish mother is a believer. And in fact, her mother was a believer. So he's been raised in a Christian home. He's been raised in a, in a home that has been talking about the gospel from the very beginning. In fact, look at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Verse, uh, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's been raised in a home that read Scripture and talked about the Bible from his earliest days. Parents, follow that pattern. Follow that practice. The regular, ordinary means of grace. The Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship with other believers. Those are the the tools that Christ has given us, His church, for our growth, for our sanctification. Parents, you would do well to, to ordinarily, regularly, just... Reading Scripture together as a family. Around the breakfast table, the dinner table, the bedside, whatever clock, whatever time, wherever on the calendar it fits for you. It looks from the outside not very extraordinary. It looks rather ordinary and average. It's a tool that God has used to train Timothy in the faith. And we know that Timothy is going to be the pastor of First Pres in Ephesus one day. That that day is coming in the not too distant future. But did you notice the conflict in the first five verses of Acts fifteen? Acts sixteen. In fact, did you know, notice the irony in these verses? Look at verse 3. Back in Acts 16. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. But look at verse 4. And then they go walking around carrying, delivering to them the churches, the, the cities, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles at the Jerusalem Council. There's the irony. There's the, the conflict. In one verse, we're told Paul had Timothy circumcised. In the very next verse, we're told Paul's carrying a letter from the Jerusalem Council saying, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now help me. But again... Timothy should have been. Paul holds a knife in one hand and the Jerusalem Council letter in the other because Timothy wasn't just a Gentile. He was Jewish. As the son of a Jewish mother, all the Jews around them would have considered him Jewish. They knew his father was a Greek and so they wondered, I bet, He's never been circumcised. And so Paul circumcises him so that he can 
interact with the Jews in the cities that they're going to go visit. The letter says that Gentiles don't need to come to Christ through Judaism, but Timothy wasn't coming as a Gentile, he was coming as a Jew who should have been, who should have received that sign as a child. He would have been unwelcomed in the synagogue. He would have been unwelcomed in so many Jewish homes as he was accompanying Paul on this second missionary journey. And so truth is, Timothy receives, is circumcised as an instrument for using him among the Jews. It doesn't contradict the decision of the Jerusalem Council. You and I don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. The ordinary, everyday, apparently chance encounter, if you'll let me use that word, Paul would meet Timothy, who goes on to be the pastor of First Pres Ephesus, the recipient of a couple of letters, Paul's protege, his trainee, Notice, God is using the everyday ordinary. Except for, there is the extraordinary in verses 6-10. through As you read verses 6-10, through Paul, Paul looks a little bit like um, a, a mouse in a scientific study. He, he turns one way and bumps into a wall. And so he turns another way and bumps into another wall. Until he turns and finds there's no wall there. And that's the direction to go. Paul wanted to go east. But he was prevented from doing so. Verse 6, we're told. Forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Well, then Paul wanted to go north. And was prevented by the Spirit of Jesus from going north. Have you ever wondered why the gospel, if you just sort of examine history, have you ever thought to yourself, why does the gospel seem to do so well in Europe and not to be quite so pervasive in Asia? Here it is, right here in Acts 16. God in His providence blocked Paul from going east. And so Paul said, okay, I can't go that way. Let's go north. And the Spirit of Jesus stops him. We're not told how. We're not told there was a vision. We're not told there was a storm. We're not told the roads were blocked. We're given nothing. All we know is that what Paul wanted to do and what God wanted him to do are not the same. And so Paul bumps into a wall as he turns east. Okay, fine, let's go north. He bumps into a wall. And he can't go there either. John Flavel, Flavel, uh, the Puritan, I think it was him who said, um, God's providence, like Hebrew, is best read backwards. So Hebrew's written right to left. If you're going to read Hebrew... You start at the right side of the page and work your way left and then down. And so all the books are printed backwards. 
It really messes up my library. I've got two books in my library, in my, on my shelf in my library that I, they don't look right because they're Hebrew and they go the wrong direction. That's sort of Paul's situation here. He's trying to go one way and God in His providence prevents him. And so he tries to go another way and God in His providence prevents him. And, and you can't see that when you're in it. You know this feeling. You know those moments when you have this great idea and you're convinced this is the right thing to do. And yet for some reason, over and over and over again, there's a wall. Rather than despair, Rather than throw your hands up and scream and yell and cry and pout and stomp and, and but, or I'm going to do. What if instead we learned to just roll with it and follow God's providence where he leads? No, we can't see that when we're in it. But after the fact, you look back and go, huh, so that's what you were doing. Darius Rucker has a song like this, by the way. I don't think he's a South Carolina Gamecock, lead singer of Hootie and the Blowfish, left to, for a country music career, which has done well. And actually, Hootie and the Blowfish have released a new album, by the way. Um, that little tidbit came out late last year. I haven't heard it. I have no idea. But he's got a country song called This. And in that song, he evaluates the red lights that stopped him. You know those red lights. I thought I was going to make it. I'm in a hurry. The red lights that stopped him. The girls that dumped him. The college that wouldn't accept him. I sort of assumed that had to be Clemson. Um, Which actually I might regret given, you know, his uh, fame. But... And it's all of those things add up together led me here to this. He may not recognize it as God's providence, but Scripture does. We do. All of those walls, all those places you bump into things, these ordinary events of life are actually God's providence unfolding your life for you. Don't begrudge the ordinary and the average because getting caught at that stoplight is just part of God's providence in your life. He's most powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. And it's only then that the extraordinary occurs in this passage. Paul has a vision. He has a vision of a man in Macedonia who said, Hey Paul, we need you. Would you come over here? Paul's going, okay, I wanted to go east. That didn't work. I wanted to go west. I mean, north. That didn't work. This is west. So if this is what I'm supposed to do, then I can see now why that wall, that door was closed, and this door was closed, and and this is where I'm going. But I want you to notice something. I want you to look at verse 10. In Acts 16, verse 10. There are two words I want you to notice. Verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision immediately... We sought, that's a change in pronouns, by the way. Luke is now part of the team. What has been they now becomes we. Watch that as you read the book of Acts. We sought to go on into Macedonia concluding 
That word concluding, the Greek word actually has the word with in it. In other words, Paul woke up, reported his vision to Timothy, Silas, and apparently Luke. And they discussed amongst themselves whether or not it was from God. Okay. You have said, or perhaps you know people who have said, God told me. I had a dream, and and I'm sure it was God telling me to do this. I had a vision, and I'm sure it was God telling me to do this. I heard a voice, and I'm sure it was God's voice telling me to do this. My question is, how do you recognize God's voice? These guys model for us a conversation among godly men seeking godly, wise counsel from each other. And they, with disgust, with concluded, with decided that this must be a vision from God and therefore a message, a command to head west. You and I are so tempted. We've so privatized Christianity today that we don't even argue with God told me. We just, and, and, and if we're convinced God told me to, then nothing you can say can make me think otherwise. Even if what I heard, thought I heard, was, is contrary to Scripture and is completely contrary to any godly biblical wisdom. We've so privatized Christianity that God told me is the trump card we can't argue with. Paul, you know Paul, wrote most of the New Testament. Well, most of the letters of the New Testament. Luke actually writes more words, larger volume, but more of the the books, individual books. The apostle blinded on the road to Damascus. He wakes up and goes, guys, here's what I've seen. Let's discuss. Is this from the Lord or no? We would do well to learn to evaluate our thoughts, our dreams, our our ideas against godly biblical counsel. Let me make a couple of applications from uh, this passage. The first is this. How do you handle disagreements like the one Paul and Barnabas had? There seems to be no sin that caused it. Now, there may have been sin in the way they talked to each other. There may have been sin in the way they got angry at each other. We don't know. We can't say there was. We, we're, not, we're not impugning them. We're not saying that. We say that's possible. There's no sinful cause for the disagreement. But how do you speak about each other once you've separated? See, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians later. That, that letter's not been written yet. Paul's going to write in 1 Corinthians and use Barnabas as an example of an equal. Rather than choosing a different... Do I need... And is it just Barnabas and I that need to live like this? He treats Barnabas like an equal. 
The question is not, in their case, not who sinned, who was wrong in the division. The question is, how will you conduct yourself afterwards? How will you speak about the other person once you've separated? You and I owe to the other all godly care and love and grace that we can show them. Second application, learn to recognize that not every closed door is a setback. Learn to recognize that closed doors are merely God's providence in your life guiding and directing you. Treat disappointments and closed opportunities as one more way that God doesn't want you to go. And that's okay. Close on the heels of that, though, a third application. Not every open door is necessarily from God. Just because you can walk through it doesn't mean you have to. And Paul models that for us in the way he wakes up with his vision. He goes, guys, this is what I've seen. Is this right? Is this godly? Is this what we're called to do? Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke... They had this discussion, this conversation about whether or not this is from God. Not every idea we think we have is God speaking to us and giving us direction. Get godly counsel. And lastly, let me make this observation. The bulk of your life is lived in the ordinary. The bulk of your life is lived in the mundane, the average, the everyday. Don't despise those things. Don't despise those as God's not here. He's in the special. God doesn't work in the average, everyday, ordinary. He only works in the extraordinary. And so my life, the less extraordinary it has, the less useful I am. That's completely contrary to God's Word. God uses the ordinary. God works in the ordinary. We have evidence of it right here in this passage. Don't despise God's work behind the scenes and in your chance encounters. The recording can't see the air quotes that I just made up here. Seek to honor and glorify God even in the average, even in the ordinary, even in the mundane. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this example, uh, this rather large passage of ordinary everyday events, things that we go through all the time, that when looking back from our perspective on Paul and Barnabas' conflict, on, on Paul's decision to go which direction, it was all a work of your providence. It was all your most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all your creatures and all their actions. Father, would you give us the eyes to see your providence at work in our lives? May their model be an encouragement to us to to live patiently, 
to look back on life and see that you were at work. Not just in the things we thought were amazing and extraordinary, but even in the average, the ordinary, and the mundane. Would you use those to teach and to train us for godly living, living to equip us for service in your kingdom, to raise up future generations of, of godly men and women who love Christ and live for Him? Would you use the ordinary events in the life of Grace Covenant Church to build and establish your kingdom here in Athens? We pray all of this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.